This podcast is produced by Whisper and Mutter. Hi, how are you? It's Imani. I need your help. I don't know a lot about you, my listeners, aside from basic analytics, like the device you listen to this podcast on or how many downloads each episode gets. I want to understand you as a human. I am a UX researcher after all. <laughs> so can you please take an anonymous listener survey at yizzyresearch.com? It'll be really helpful for me. Thank you. Now on to the show. You're listening to the Yizzy Research Podcast, the podcast for people who research people. You are listening to the voice of your host, Imani, UX researcher at and founder of the UX research company, Yizzy Research. I help organizations understand their users, and I coach aspiring and practicing UX researchers in their career journeys. In this episode, I speak with Ja. I met Ja when we were both NYCX Innovation Fellows. I was impressed with his design expertise and level-headedness. At the time of this recording, Ja was a product designer at LinkedIn. In the first part of our conversation, he discusses the importance of doing secondary research as a UX professional, how he tackles working on a huge product like LinkedIn, how LinkedIn supports the entire hiring journey with their recruiter's suite of tools, and how making tiny UI decisions affects the business and its various customer segments. Our conversation starts with Ja telling us what he did at LinkedIn as a product designer. Sure. So I've been a product designer at LinkedIn for the past uh, two and a half years. And that entire time I've worked on our enterprise recruiter team, meaning I support the products that recruiters use to reach out to you when they approach you with an opportunity. So uh, every day is a bit different, but I think one way to think about it is that there's the long arc of the product development cycle, right? So usually what happens is that you have a company a company vision and then a long-term strategy that you're working towards and there's an entire planning cycle around that but once we've aligned on that the as a designer i work with our product manager and sometimes our user researchers our marketers to really try and funnel down on what are the opportunities um, that we should be trying to design for and so usually that implies some research process which i will play a part in and um, so early on in that product development cycle, I might be spending more time, you know, reviewing interview guides, brainstorming questions, doing secondary research with my partners to understand, you know, what's happening in the recruiting landscape. But of course, as we move uh, further along into the actual design process, I'll spend a lot more time documenting, kind of whiteboarding things with my partners, brainstorming things, but more in kind of an actual like design sense. And um, we do spend a lot of time these days in Figma since we migrated to that, I think about a year ago. So fr from the early stages when I'm just wireframing things out down to the detailed design explorations, I'm living very much in Figma. So if you imagine further along in the product development process, I'm spending a lot more time working with uh, my, primarily myself, but also my design team to iterate on these designs, polish them to a higher level of fidelity and getting lots of feedback along the way. And then a big chunk of that further along in the process is um, is working with our engineering teams, right? Making sure that they've had a chance to review the designs, provide their feedback. Um, oftentimes, they're also a great source of ideas as well. So you want to make sure you're engaging them early on. So um, yeah, it's, it's hard to say day to day because I also work on multiple projects at the same time. So they can all be at different parts in this process. So uh, I would say like probably there's always a mix of that research, exploration, um, design, 
uh, execution, and then also implementation work with uh, with our engineering partners. You mentioned that as part of your planning process before and while doing design work, you do quite a bit of secondary research. So what does that look like for you? Right. So my background originally was in education and more of a business role. So I naturally just like reading and learning about things. So um, and, and that's true of any project I'd work on. Right. So but within LinkedIn, if you think about what a designer needs to do, you need to at least have a decent understanding of your the industry that your product and your company is playing in and uh, try to keep keep on top of general trends and read about, you know, for example, with recruiting, there's this big push towards diversity and inclusion. What's that about? You know, what companies are doing really well in that space and, and why? Um, or there's all this focus on um, on AI in terms of how it could improve hiring efficiency, but also concerns about how it could uh, increase bias in the hiring process or introduce bias, right? So, um, you know, I obviously I don't spend my days just sort of like <laughs> uh, reading market research and compiling it, but I, I do try to keep on top of that, just, you know, reading articles, but also there's a lot of stuff in a size, in, in a company as large as LinkedIn, there's a lot of material constantly be being generated internally. So I'll always try to read um, uh, presentations or readouts from other teams who are doing this type of research. So I, I consider that kind of secondary because I'm not, you know, literally talking to users or customers to gain that knowledge, right? You're, you're sort of getting it secondhand, but that's primarily what I mean. Yeah, that's also really meta because you mentioned that LinkedIn produces a lot of knowledge internally in the forms of like readouts and um, reports. However, LinkedIn, of course, also produces a lot of content um, externally for the public, right? Um, so it's so funny because you're working in a space where you can actually use the product you're working on to actually do secondary research. So you can learn a lot about learn a lot about HR from reading the articles on LinkedIn, the blogs on LinkedIn. Yeah, it actually helps with um, when we during our design process and when we're doing user research. Like one of the things that LinkedIn can do because you know obviously on my team we're building an HR product. And of course we have a very large and, uh, and diverse and complex HR team. So sometimes during the design process, if you're just trying to get, for example, like quick usability feedback, we actually have this program set up where you can, uh, I think every other Friday, you can sign up for a time slot and um, sit down with our recruiters and test your designs with them. So that, that wouldn't be true in all domains. You know, we, we're pretty fortunate in that regard, but it's fairly easy for us to recruit users for testing either internally or or externally and linkedin has over i would imagine over what half half a billion users worldwide it's a lot of people right so how do you design for everyone so i know you work mostly on the recruiting product but that's still a large number of people right so how do you even begin to design for so many people yeah, for sure. Um, and I think last time I saw this published, I forget the internal numbers, but I think the public one was like 740 million people, which is to me a mind boggling number, right? It's it's hard to sort of intuitively reason your way through 740 million individual people. Um, but that said, I think uh, I'll, I'll break it down in two ways, right? One is the the culture and the mindset of an organization, like what are the things that you value? What are the habits that you all have as, as people working together? And then there may be like specific processes and tools, right? So I think on the mindset side, um, even though it hasn't always been obvious from the outside in, but 
I think LinkedIn has always had a pretty inclusive culture that has cared about diversity within its ranks. Now, obviously, tech across the board has not done a great job here. So not not just LinkedIn, but all major tech companies, I think, are making a push in that direction. But that said, I think at LinkedIn, because it has this global member base, uh, we, we call our users members, right? So we have this global member base, which means that uh, across the board, whenever you're designing products, you, you're thinking about not just how it's working in the US, but internationally, right? And so part of what makes that possible is by building out team members who represent um, different geographies, uh, different industries, and also di different you know, demographic um, and cultural backgrounds too. So I think that, that has been a big focus for LinkedIn for a while, but especially within the last few years in terms of hiring, that push has been there. And I think that that just sort of organically manifests itself and trying to at least keep keep uh, diversity top of mind, right, in all of its forms. But the other big push at LinkedIn, which I, I really didn't think as much about, to be honest, when I first started designing is around accessibility. Um, and there's accessibility in terms of the, the fact that there's a really large percentage of people around the world who have you know, limited vision or limited uh, mobility in their fingers, which we take for granted with, you know, with typing and using a mouse. And, um, and so another aspect that we've focused on in terms of our culture and, and mindset has been making a really big push to make our products more accessible. Again, not just LinkedIn, but I think a lot of tech companies across the board. Um, and so I think, you know, if you translate that into like the actual processes, I think when we do our planning, for example, as a, as a company, we're always looking for number one, how do we grow in a way that is inclusive and builds up our community over time? Like you may have seen actually on the LinkedIn public website and on the mobile app, there's been this big rebrand, the design language, the look and feel of it is pretty different. The motivating thought behind that was we wanted to move away from, you know, corporate guy in a suit with uh, these like dark grays and blues to something that was like warmer, um, uh, gave more space to the actual content itself. And also in terms of the actual product design features, fostering active communities within the product, instead of just, you, you know, you show up to post a job and then you bounce, right? Or you show up and, um, you know, try to submit an application and you're gone. So obviously that's good from a business perspective because, you know, LinkedIn is a social media company. So you're trying to boost engagement, but it's also the, the underlying DNA of that is to try and make people feel more included uh, wherever they're from and for, you know whatever industry whatever uh, country whatever language gender um and 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 so on and you work like you said you work on linkedin's recruiting products so let's say if i am a member and um i'm using linkedin and a recruiter reaches out to me saying hey i have a role for you are you interested you work on that product so do you own a particular product feature how do you even break down a product like that so I've primarily owned our messaging related features in Recruiter during my time here. Um, the funny thing is when I first joined the team, I think we had maybe five or six designers. So it's a pretty large complex product and that's not that many designers given the complexity of it. So I ended up working on a grab bag of different things, but messaging is still my core and I've worked on a couple of other initiatives in the meantime. Um, the question of how to divide up your team to work on things is still, that that is still a really great question that I'm trying to work through right now. And I, I think all of us are right, because you could take more of a feature by feature approach, which is partly what we do. 
but we've also in the past tried to take more of like a track based approach. So for example, at one point we had this track called recruiter engagement that included like onboarding that, that were just things that we thought would, uh, if you looked at a recruiter's user journey end to end, this would help them onboard, adopt and be productive in the product. Right. Um, I think we ultimately reorged because of, of some reason, but, um, there's that feature level, there's kind of a, like a user journey or user persona level. And then also one other thing that makes it complicated for us is that our design team actually supports two different products. There's recruiter, which, um, if you actually talk to recruiters, they'll be like, oh yeah, I know LinkedIn recruiter. That's like really core to my job. But there's this new product we launched called Talent Hub, which is an applicant tracking system. So if you've ever hired candidates, you've probably seen like uh, Greenhouse or Lever. There are these systems, right, where you can manage your, your applicants and actually go through that entire hiring process. Well, LinkedIn launched its own version of that, which is really, if you think about it, kind of an extension of Recruiter. So Recruiter is very early on in that hiring process and really focused on trying to get people into the early stages. Well, Talent Hub is supporting the rest of that entire hiring journey, all the way from you know setting up interviews to sending offers out. So the the upshot of that is that our team, our design team, actually supports both. And uh, thankfully, we've ended up hiring more and more people. So we've we've been growing that team. So there are at least a few people focused specifically on that. But like when I work on messaging, I have to think about LinkedIn Recruiter. Uh, I have to think about Talent Hub. And then I also have to think about how messaging on Recruiter intersects with messaging on LinkedIn.com, which is a huge, huge ecosystem, like millions and millions of messages being sent uh, per day, different types of messages. I, I actually, I greatly respect the type of thinking that they have to do on that side, because like, if you've ever looked at the, uh, the LinkedIn.com messaging experience, you might think, well, that, you know, it's fairly straightforward. You know, there's a chat window and you, you hit send and that's it well but on on the flip side of that when you're designing for it you're really designing uh for this you're really designing the um the behaviors of an entire ecosystem which is can, can be super complicated um so happy to get into like some of my experiences there but like that that kind of covers the scope of my work right now let's go deeper yeah i mean i'll give you a simple example that um that you know is publicly ramped now so you can see it if you go on LinkedIn right now and go to the messaging experience, let's say you get a recruiter in mail, right? You'll see these quick replies like a yes and no thanks, and then the option to just write a reply. One of the first projects I jumped into here um, when I first started working on messaging was this change to that experience that had been actually evolving over multiple years. So it actually even started before I joined the company. And um, obviously, I don't think I can talk about the details of that, but one of the things we were trying to figure out was how do you allow members, the, you know, you and me recruited, uh, getting these recruiter messages, how do you allow members to express themselves and quickly and reply to these, but also give feedback to recruiters um, and also feedback to our system, right? Because ultimately if a recruiters, if recruiters keep on sending you messages that you're like, I'm not interested in this, we should actually have a way of understanding that so we can help you and the recruiters, you know, match up better, right? Uh, give them better search results and also give you better opportunities receiving. But uh, once I got into the weeds of this, I realized it was super complicated. I was like, well, why don't we just throw this button here? It's like, well, if you put that button there, first of all, how would that work given all the other types of messages? We have 
LinkedIn sales navigator, which has these in-mail messages, marketing solutions also sends its own in-mail messages. And these are kind of branded as sponsored messages. So if you add this button there, like does that button appear across all these other types of messages? Okay. And then if you add that button there, what exactly goes in there? Because if you select that, then that, well, A, it's like from a member perspective, if there's any confusion, you're actually going to see like a dip in uh, their reply rates, which if you multiply like a 5% dip, um, relatively speaking, a 5% dip across tens of millions of people, that's actually a huge business impact, right? Um, and then obviously, if you share that back to recruiters and they're confused, they're going to see their numbers go down in terms of the, the accepts that they're getting from candidates. And um, actually, at this point, recruiters have so integrated our messaging into their workflows that some of them actually have their performance evaluated based on the quality of their messages, meaning like you send out 100 of these messages. How many people are you actually hearing back from? Um, obviously, as a recruiter, that's that's not um, that's not necessarily like the main way that you're evaluated and not all recruiters are evaluated that way. But it's there are all these like kind of ecosystem level um, behaviors and incentives and consequences that play out from making those tiny little UI decisions. And, you know, back when I was in grad school a few years ago, learning about this stuff, it it's hard to sort of wrap your head around the consequences of that, because usually you're like, well, I'll just change this layout or, or add a button here or tweak this thing. It feels clearer. But there are all these trade-offs you have to think about the in a company that uh, is large and has a really large ecosystem that's complex. If you're enjoying this podcast, go to Apple Podcasts and give it a five-star rating and a glowing review. Subscribe, follow. Many of you messaged me to tell me how much you like the podcast, but it's even better if you share it with your coworkers, mentees, and mentors on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and any other platform I forgot to mention. Spread the love. Don't keep me to yourself. <laughs> Also, if you are an aspiring or even a current UX researcher who needs help with your resume, interviewing skills, professional branding, cover letter, LinkedIn profile, and portfolio, consider applying for the Yizzy Research Coaching Program. In the rest of this episode, Jod talks about Kano models, performance features, labor markets, how being a teacher influenced his product design career, research and insights prioritization, and dealing with conflict when you're not confrontational. And a huge part of trying to understand the trade-offs is, of course, doing user research. And um, although you are a product designer, you do some research in your role. So what percentage of your role is design work and what percentage is more UX research work? Um, I think if you averaged it out, across my entire here, my entire time here, I'd say probably like 15%, maybe tw up to 20% of my time is doing research. And that that's because, um, like I said, in the past, we didn't necessarily have that many dedicated UX researchers to the project I worked on. So I ended up working with a UX researcher to uh, design studies, and then I would do the actual interviewing and, uh, and work with them on the synthesis. Uh, so I'd say in the past I did more, but more recently as we've grown the research team, as we've kind of reprioritized things, I've definitely benefited from having way more research help from our uh, UX research team. Um, that said, I've really enjoyed that. I When I first got into UX design, I was kind of torn between UX research versus design. 
because I also like nerding out on human behavior and talking to people. Um, <clears throat> so I ended up focusing on design, uh, but I think actually at LinkedIn, it's been nice that I've been able to dip my toes in research, at least at least a little bit. Yeah, and I can imagine when you're doing your own research and also when the UX researchers present you with so many insights, how do you decide what's important, right? Like, how do you decide, okay, what do we need to focus on or prioritize in terms of product design when you're getting so many insights? Oh, that is a, that is the million dollar question, right? Because I think actually in a place like LinkedIn, maybe this is true of all companies, but especially in a place like LinkedIn, we have a ton of customers, a ton of users, and actually a ton of people interact, you know, interfacing with them. So when you think about trying to understand what are your users needs and, and frame and prioritize those opportunities, uh, those can come from lots of different places. So I've been talking about UX research because I partner with them closely and, you know, spiritually I'm very aligned with it, but obviously like, especially in the enterprise space, we have salespeople, we have customer success people who are interacting with customers every day. Obviously that's a huge source of insight, right? Um, we also have people who work more on the operations side who might be looking at, uh, customer tickets coming in or bug, <laughs> bug alerts that are coming in. So all of these need to be funneled down and prioritized in, in, in some way, right? So if you think about, maybe we can split it into like proactive forward-looking work versus reactive, like, oh, this is a problem and we need to solve it. I think on the forward-looking stuff, um, we, we I'd say like the general process is that we do a, an exploratory round of research, which includes market research by our marketing and, and our business teams. And as sorry, what, what I mean is like we do like quantitative based market research, right, as well as qualitative. And that qualitative research can be driven by our product marketing team or UX research team, depending on kind of what that project is. Um, but then after that, in terms of prioritizing, it seems to vary a lot by team. Like this, I'll, I'll talk about what I've experienced, right? So um, I've been a part of workshops where we think through, like use some framework where we try to kind of collectively reason our way through that. They're different, you know, you can on, on a simple level, think of like effort versus impact. There are more complex models. You can think like there's a Kano model thinking through what are basic expectations, features, um, performance features versus delighters. And then uh, for better or for worse, I've also seen ones where it it sort of like is a leadership level thing where I may not have as much visibility into it, but because, you know, there there can only be so many people who, who jump into like a VP of product meeting. Um, and but the times that I have jumped into that, it is a bit like it feels a bit like a free for all because there's a lot of context that these senior leaders are, are trying to work through. So you're not going through some like, you know, design thinking workshop. It's more like people trying to think through, uh, given all the context they have, vision, strategy, all the way down to kind of roadmaps at a, at a product feature level, right? So I don't, unfortunately, I don't have like a hard and fast answer. I'm still in that process of learning what are all the different tools and, and frameworks for thinking through these types of things. But that's that's on the proactive side. I think on the reactive side, it's actually a lot easier because, um, like number one, I think as human beings, I think it's a bit easier to think through, oh, this is an urgent problem versus this is a future facing opportunity that if we if we just invest in it, it'll it'll go well. I think this is why 
you know, in our own lives and oftentimes in, in the like business planning cycle, we tend to maybe focus on the things that are like urgent fires to fix um, versus it like long-term innovation, long-term growth and opportunities, right? Because the former is more urgent. So when we think about that side of things, yeah, we'd basically just compile all that feedback. And then there's, I think, a recurring meeting where based on the number of users or customers affected, based on the the um, uh, the estimated size of that impact, we'll just we'll largely just prioritize it that way. But maybe with some exception where we think there's some strategic value in bumping this up in the priorities list, like maybe unlock some other thing if we've finally like invested in, in that or fixed it now. So um, yeah, I think I think like that's kind of how I think about it. I, I, it's a good question. Actually, this is one of those questions that I've periodically tried to talk to different people about. And it seems like it, it is kind of a bit all over the map and it's it's partly, it it may sometimes be more of an art than a science, if you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think so, too. I think you're also getting at the fact that in the UX space, whether you design or do research or if you're a UX writer, it's kind of all like a balance between art and science, right? Like we all have different flavors of understanding things and approaching UX. Um, and also speaking of that, you mentioned Kano models, um, sorry, the Kano model. And then you also mentioned performance features and delighters. Can you talk a little bit more about those? Oh, sure. Uh, it might be Kano. I think it was originally from Japan. Um but the, the original idea was that it's a, it's like a market research framework, right? The idea is that uh, imagine a graph, there's an x-axis and a y-axis. On the x is how much functionality do we want to invest in whatever this idea is, right? Like at the zero is this is not built at all. And all the way far out is like, this is the perfect, perfect, maximally built out version of that feature or product, right? And then uh, the y is customer satisfaction. And so the idea is that if you, let's say you pick some feature and maybe for recruiter, uh, recruiter messaging, it's, I don't know, like out of office replies or something, right? Like the ability to say, Hey, I'm not in the office, please get back to me tomorrow or something. Okay. So if you actually think about this, like you could start off by building nothing. How would people feel about that? You could build a very poor, like a minimal version of it, what you might call an MVP, right? And then you could build a solid version and then an amazing version. So if it's a feature that is basic expectation, if you don't build it at all, customers are actually going to come in like very negative. Like I am really unhappy. I'm very dissatisfied. Right. And then if you build an MVP, they they'll be like, okay, sure. This is all right. If you build a better version, they'll be like, yeah, that's pretty good. But the point is that as you invest more, it'll actually kind of max out. It's like, think of out of office replies. You could like really polish the heck out of that experience. But at a certain point, you're like, this is good enough. I'm not getting as much delight out of this, right? So you can think of uh, maybe certain features as basic expectation features in that regard. So if you think of your, I don't know, uh, your own email client, right? Like a basic expectation feature might be like, yeah, the ability to style your text. It's like that has existed forever. So um, maybe if you invested more in it, people would be excited, but it would probably like flatten out after a certain point. What I meant by performance features though, and this is an interesting concept. You can think about this next time you use one of your own products. Like let's say you're using Google drive, right? The performance feature is something which just scales linearly with the amount of investment you put into it. And so these tend to be, um, they'll, they'll tend to be like a couple of things that are really core to the experience. So for example, in Google drive, it might be just the amount of file storage that you have. 
the more that you give people, the probably the more satisfied they'll be, right? It'll just kind of scale linearly with that um, that attribute of the product or, the, or that feature. And so if you think of recruiter messaging, uh, that might be the number of in-mail credits we give you. Like today, we give a limited number of, of credits when recruiters pay for these in-mail messages. Um, and of course, they can purchase more. But if, if tomorrow we're like, oh, actually, you get a thousand for the same amount of money, they'd be like, great. It's probably, that's what we would call a performance feature, right? A delighter one would be like, like if you think of that X and Y again, right? Let, let's say you build the worst version of this product. They're, they're already like actually a bit satisfied. They're like, wow, I didn't even think I wanted this thing. Just having this is already kind of cool. But then incrementally investing in the functionality of that gives you kind of disproportionate returns in terms of customer satisfaction. And so um, I think one thing that's been interesting to think about in terms of that model is how does that apply to our feature areas, right? But the other thing is that these, if you think about it, these are kind of based on customer expectations, right? Like the how satisfied you are with a product is I think also a function of your expectations for that product. And those expectations change over time as um, industries mature, as products mature, as customers' expectations usually go up. So I think whereas some of the earlier features, some of the um, uh, legacy features of LinkedIn Recruiter probably used to be delighters because they didn't exist before. Now they've become maybe basic to expectations. So you're always like thinking, if you think of these curves, like it's not a static set of curves. These will change over time as, as technology evolves, as customer expectations evolve. And so that's why on the recruiter side and, and across our division, we've been going through this like kind of renewed vision and planning process because you, you always have to like look forward again and, and try to recalibrate that. And earlier you mentioned when we were talking more about the balance between design work and UX research work in your role in particular, you mentioned that obviously you do more design work, but you mentioned that you really do love to nerd out on like human behavior when you get the chance to, right? So in your time at LinkedIn and you've been there for about three years, what have you learned about human behavior over this time? Oh man. Um, so many things. <laughs> let me let me try to pick a like a good one. Uh, okay, man, I'll pick two things. First, I'll start off on the enterprise side, the recruiting side uh, where I've been working. Um, I think so. I've been thinking a lot about economics lately, so I'm going to be crossing a bit over into economics jargon. But I, I think actually that obviously it's a social science, so nah, take that. Um, uh, one of the things I did not think as much about when I first joined was the nature of labor markets, right? There's the demand for a particular skill set, and then there's the supply of it, right? And when you think of a particular job, like let's say UX researcher, there, there's that demand side for UX researchers and supply side. And the nature of that labor market, the dynamics within it, dictates a lot or influences a lot about everything in terms of hiring, in terms of recruiting, customer needs, technology needs, product, all, all of that stuff, right? So for example, like one basic example is that uh, I would say probably UX research is a fairly in-demand field, uh, especially relative to, to some of them out there, same with UX designer. So in those fields, that's where you would actually see recruiters in the first place. Like I used to be a high school teacher. I never got any 
recruiter messages, unfortunately. And frankly, I and all the other you know high school teachers out there, in my opinion, were vastly underpaid. But that's the nature of that labor market, right? And so when you think about LinkedIn's products, if you overlay it on top of this, people are like, well, okay, let's build a, a good hiring product. You're like, okay, but for who? And when you start digging into the for who, like a recruiter within a staffing agency focused on designers, engineers, PMs, et cetera, the, the reason why they tell you things like, um, yes, I need great search capabilities. I need more in-mail credits. I did da, 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 da. all of that is because at the very foundation of it is the nature of that labor market. Designers are in demand because uh, software is eating the world, which is driving digital transformation across everything, which is why we need these jobs, right? Which is why it's hard to hire these people. Um, and I think LinkedIn more recently has been really trying to grow, going back to that um, inclusiveness mission and also growing its its uh, member base, has been really trying to push outside of just the traditional, you know, white collar tech uh, professional audience. But that that implies a, a different set of things. Like think of the the nature of that labor market and also the hiring practices within that. You know, if you're a frontline uh, worker in Target. Uh, increasingly, at least before COVID, actually, because it was a tight labor market overall, um, recruiters and HR managers, even in a target, were trying to more proactively find employees, right? So because of that tightening labor market, suddenly they started thinking, well, you know, normally we would only use these in-mail messages for hiring um, uh, people for our corporate uh, headquarters. But now... Yeah, maybe if there's an opportunity to try to reach potential people to work in our actual stores, then we would we would try that out, right? So that that's one of those things that like I I never thought as much about, but it I really like that because you know um, for anyone who likes thinking about systems and like people uh, working in systems in in like all the way from like economics to uh, individual psychology, there's a really nice through line that I think helps explain you know why. You have in-mail credits for recruiters in staffing agencies trying to hire engineers in like New York, for example. So I, I guess like that's probably one one of the biggest things, like kind of organizing concepts I've uh, I've learned during my time here. And you mentioned that you used to be a high school teacher. So a lot of researchers and designers have backgrounds in teaching. So how has being a teach teacher or how has having been a teacher influence your current role as a product designer? Oh, I mean, it, it's been hugely influential. So I didn't always think of it this way because when, when I first got into teaching, I was just really confused about my my career direction. And um, I, I was drawn to teaching because it was the one thing, like, so to give you background, in undergrad, I first was in electrical engineering, did not like that, then bioengineering. And I was like, why am I doing engineering? And I settled on molecular bio uh, because I thought it was kind of a nice balance between different, you know, competing goals I had. But I got really drawn to education because it spoke to two important pieces to me. Number one is helping people. And number two is uh, being able to think creatively, right? And even though it might not be obvious to people who haven't taught before, but teaching is a highly, highly creative act. Uh, just try coming up with a presentation, targeting different audiences, and then structure and structure some activity and then try to figure out did they actually learn it or not how would you actually measure that if for all the designers in the room and probably ux researchers you're like oh actually that, that kind of sounds a lot like 
designing a product, but maybe instead of a slide deck or worksheets or textbooks, you're swapping in an interactive, like software-based experience, right? And and so like the things I took away from teaching, number one, were mindsets and values. Like one of the first things I internalize a teacher is it does not, it does not matter at all what you you're planning to say. It matters what people understand, right? So I so I struggled with this for the longest time because I had, I didn't have a good understanding of what was actually happening inside my students' head. So I'd work all night on some thing that completely fell flat. And at a certain point, I actually realized that I needed to start earlier with having a deeper understanding with my of my students and how they understood what I was trying to say and actually take a more iterative approach. So instead of coming up, spending hours and hours on the slide deck or on this activity, like maybe start off with something simple, um, just try it out, see if they're really understanding it. Or if I also, yeah, I used to teach science. It's like, did I make a, make a mistake in setting up this activity? Will it blow everything up? Sometimes the answer was yes, and it was very painful. But like, I think that mindset of being very curious about who your audience is, being humble about what you can assume about like your solution actually working and making sense at all inside of their heads, and then trying to de-risk it instead of spending hours or weeks planning something that blows up, just try a thing out and then learn from it and then iterate on that. Um, th those are all things that like I directly translated into design. The other thing is that I've realized that as a designer and probably anyone working in a modern uh, product team, communication skills and collaboration skills are like a hidden superpower, right? Because even if you're trying to be an individual contributor, at a certain point, you're going to have to present your work. You'll have to communicate why you want to do something. And since design doesn't happen in a vacuum, and since oftentimes you're, you're not even like the highest paid person in the room, you have to communicate your ideas and um, and be able to to sometimes sell them to other people. And so with teaching, uh, I basically got knocked around enough where I almost never walk into a room and feel like fear. I, I'm sometimes a bit anxious that eh, maybe this won't go exactly as I planned, but I can as safely assume that the CEO won't throw a stapler at my head or like no <laughs> one will... So, right like no no one will suddenly try to like set fire to the lab or i won't like you know slip and shatter glass everywhere like the things that i i had kind of experienced in teaching i think gave me a thicker skin towards uh failure and and of putting myself out there like verbally and also emotionally in my work so i'm actually very grateful for teaching for that experience obviously i've had other experiences that also helped me uh, kind of develop those skills, but I think teaching gave me the foundation of that. And, um, and, and uh, like someday, actually, I would like to get back to teaching, but probably this time to teach some either product design or something about, you know, like human centered design. I, I think maybe I just jumped the gun and taught bio instead of the thing that I would actually want to teach once I have the, uh, you know, the skills and expertise to do so. Yeah, and I'm happy you mentioned that. Like when you are a high school teacher, I mean, I've never been a teacher. I used to work in a daycare with like really young kids and they they were a trip. So I can imagine with high schoolers, like you can't be a punk and be a teacher. <laughs> so like you said, you have a thick skin. So I was like, bring it on. Like you can probably take on the CEO or engage with the CPO or a difficult stakeholder. So that that's a really important skill to have too when you work in UX for sure. Yeah, it's, it's uh, it, I mean, it's going to be a, like a lifelong journey because for me as a person, I'm a really nice guy. I hate conflict. I, I, um, 
I've had to learn over time how to deal with that in a more direct and not confrontational, but just in a more direct way that hopefully resolves things more quickly. Um, so, you know, I think, I, I think actually just as with teaching, you know, designers can have different personalities and have different ways of handling that. And I think the lifelong journey part is how to lean into the parts in which you're maybe weak or less comfortable with while also acknowledging who you are and being authentic to yourself. Like I, I don't, like rolling into a room acting like i have all the answers and trying to you know power pose my way in front of it I, i'm just you know too chill and nice of a guy to do that but um i've tried to both own that part of myself which is a strength in certain circumstances but um kind of figure out how what is my version of being uh you know like getting into a heated debate or being really pointed and direct in my feedback I appreciate how Jot ended that. As someone who is also not very confrontational, dealing with conflict is really uncomfortable, especially in the workplace. From my conversations with other UX researchers, this seems to be our nature. As Jot said, the lifelong journey is to maintain authenticity while balancing our personality challenges. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to take the listener survey on yazidresearch.com Give this podcast a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and follow Yuzi Research on Twitter and LinkedIn. We'll chat soon.